Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is Why Is That, the podcast. You, dear listener, with you. Welcome back to Why Is That. Falling in love is such a common phrase that we hardly even think of it as a metaphor. It is one of the most common idioms in the English language. In my opinion, idioms are the real spice of language. One way to see how much we rely on idioms is to try speaking to someone who does not speak English and have a third party translate. Idioms are often not translatable across languages. As Sterling Archer explained, Idioms are colloquial metaphors, a phrase whose meaning isn't obvious from looking at the literal meanings of the individual words. According to theidioms.com, English has over 25,000 idiomatic expressions. Maybe you need to hit the books, or twist someone's arm, or stab someone in the back. You likely are well aware that those mean to study, to coerce someone, and to betray someone, respectively. However, imagine you are new to English and you try to figure out their meaning. How is smacking a textbook going to help you pass a test? Why are you assaulting someone? And do you mean that you attempted murder? We learn these phrases by use and they really bring our language to life. For falling in love, we aren't descending under the force of gravity into a giant pool of love, nor are our emotions dropping from higher planes into the lower plane of love. Instead, we are rapidly developing strong feelings of attraction. It does not really make sense based on the literal definition of the words, but it still makes sense on a figurative level. Falling is often unexpected and unexplained. Starting to love someone is often the same. It really is quite poetic. To find the origin of falling in love, or at least the idiom, we must first travel back to classical Athens. In around the year 525 BCE, a man named Aeschylus was born. He is known as the father of tragedy. Not that he begat tragedy, but rather for his credited role in creating the theatrical genre of tragedy. Greek tragedy is thought to have emerged sometime in the 6th century BCE, so he probably didn't actually create the genre, but his work is the oldest surviving example of the genre, and Aristotle does credit Aeschylus with expanding casts and shows and introducing conflict into the story between those characters. No tragedies composed in the 6th century still exist, and only 32 of an estimated 1,000 5th century tragedies have survived. Of those 32, all have been credited to one of three men, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. One of these seminal events in Greek history was the Battle of Salamis. It was a naval battle that saw the Greeks defeat the Persians, which forced Xerxes to retreat with a majority of his army. He left an underling to continue the war against the Greeks, but Salamis was the turning point that eventually resulted in the Greeks repelling the Persian invasion and gaining back their previously conquered land. The three playwrights I just mentioned all had different roles in the battle. Aeschylus fought in the battle, Sophocles was just old enough to remember celebrating the victory in a boy's choir, and Euripides was born on the day of the battle. We are going to leave behind the two elders and instead follow the baby. The earliest known play by Euripides is Pleiades which was written in 455 BCE. Unfortunately, it has since been lost. In fact, of his 92 plays, the vast majority have been lost, with only 18 or 19 surviving mostly intact. However, most of his other plays at least have surviving fragments. 
It is one of those surviving fragment plays which concern us in our quest to fall in love. In 412 BCE, Euripides debuted his new tragedy known as Andromeda. It is based on the Greek myth of Andromeda and is particularly notable because of the love story between Perseus and Andromeda. It is thought to be the first instance in Greek theatrical history where a young man begins to love a woman while on stage. If we have lost other earlier instances of on-stage love, then we can at least say it was an unusual aspect for plays of its time. In one of the surviving fragments of Andromeda, we find the Greek phrase eis erota pithin, which translates to falling in love. It is the first known instance of this phrase occurring in any written work, and John Gibbert, a professor of classics at the University of Colorado, notes that the expression occurs almost nowhere else in classical Greek. While we only have fragments of Andromeda, the show and its love story must have had a sizable impact on the pop culture of its day, as evidenced by the comic playwright Aristophanes writing a parody of the show into his play Thesmophorazusi, which debuted the following year. In it, he pokes fun at the Perseus character for falling in love, pokes fun at the idea of falling in love at first sight, and makes a point of turning the love of the characters into lust. I'm going to stop now instead of digging deeper into the rivalry between Euripides and Aristophanes. Instead, I want to note the importance of this phrase appearing in writing for the first time. It begs the question whether or not it was a common phrase for the classical Greeks, and it just never made it into other surviving works, or if Euripides coined the phrase. In Andromeda, Perseus fell for Andromeda while descending from the sky on winged sandals. Does this mean that he literally fell in love? Perhaps. And perhaps that is why Euripides phrased it as he did. It is also possible that Euripides was looking for a way to describe the sudden and unexpected feelings of love experienced by Perseus, and went with fall thanks to the similarly sudden and unexpected nature of a fall. It is also possible that it was just a very common phrase, so he used it. Euripides' body of work was considered somewhat controversial during his lifetime thanks to its subject matter, which may explain why he won fewer awards than Aeschylus and Sophocles, but Euripides had mass appeal and his work only grew more popular in Athens after his death. It was this popularity that carried the work of Euripides from Athens to Rome. The works of Euripides became common in Rome and an important part of a growing boy's education. Seneca the Younger was known to have adapted works of Euripides into Latin, which furthered Euripides' popularity to Roman audiences. Nemo potes uno aspectu neque preteriens in amorum incidere. This Latin sentence appears in Cicero's De Inventione. The work was written somewhere around 84 BCE, and this particular sentence translates as, No one can fall in love at a single glance, or as he is passing by. In amorum incidere, in particular, is the fall in love portion. Due to the popularity of Euripides, it is possible that Cicero and Latin writers like him were inspired by Ice Erota Pitin and used it as the basis to coin the term in amorum incidere. Whether or not Euripides or the Greek phrase were the inspiration, it was the next incarnation of Fall in Love. It is unknown exactly how widespread in amorum incidere was in the popular parlance of the Roman Empire, and charting literacy rate of the ancient world is notoriously tricky, though definitely much smaller than today. I have seen estimates that said literacy was as low as 5-10% to of the Roman Empire population, but other estimates think this is far too low. 
we could go down a very deep rabbit hole to investigate the literacy rate of the Roman Empire, and if you are interested, I can send you a few links that discuss it, but the actual rate is not as important for our focus today. The important piece is that the phrase inamorum incidere appeared in multiple Latin works that have survived to this day. The consumption of those works decreased during the late antique period, which is generally described as the period of time from the late 3rd century to the 8th century. In Europe, this was due in part thanks to the split of the Roman Empire into East and West that saw the province of Egypt migrate to the Eastern Roman Empire. As trade routes deteriorated between Egypt and Western Europe, a knock-on effect was the elimination of easy access to Egyptian papyrus. Papyrus is a relatively cheap writing surface, and it was replaced by locally produced parchment. Parchment has a more in-depth process of creation and was more expensive than papyrus when trade was easy. The change to parchment in part contributed to a reduction of literacy among the masses and a concentration of literacy to the elites, the scholars, and the clergy, which were not mutually exclusive distinctions. The rise of Christianity further contributed to a reduction of Latin and Greek classics as they were replaced by Christian texts. This is highlighted by the luxury arts of late antiquity. Manuscript illumination on vellum and parchment emerged from the 5th century. Our oldest surviving example is that of the Quidlinburg Italia fragment, in which was discovered in Germany in the 19th century and was produced in Rome sometime in the 420s or 430s. It includes beautiful illustrations along with translations from the book of 1 Samuel of the Old Testament. For these types of examples, there are lots of Christians' texts, but fewer Latin and Greek classics. The waves of the greedy sea are kept within fixed bounds, nor may the land move out and extend its limits. What brings all things to order, governing earth and sea and sky, is love. This is a quote from Boethius's The Consolation of Philosophy. Boethius is sometimes given the lofty distinction as the last of the Romans and first of the scholastics. His great work was published in 524 CE, and it became one of the most important and influential works on Christianity for the next 1,000 years. Due to its elegance, it also gained considerable importance in the medieval grammar curriculum. Boethius was even one of those specifically called out as residing in paradise in Dante's Divine Comedy. In the work, Boethius reflects on how evil can exist in a world governed by God. He draws a connection between poetry and philosophy. In addition to Christian texts, he draws on the likes of Aristotle's topics, the works of Themistius, and importantly, Cicero's De Inventione. Works like The Consolation of Philosophy helped keep the works of the pagan Cicero valuable enough in Christian-centric Europe to preserve from the late antique period through the Middle Ages and up to the Renaissance. Speaking of which, I have always disliked the term and periodization of the Middle Ages. The idea of the Middle Ages was developed by Renaissance-era thinkers, especially Petrarch and Leonardo Bruni. In the 1330s, Petrarch looked at Italy and divided history into two periods, the Ancient Age for everything that happened in the pre-Christian world, and the New Age for everything that had happened since. Petrarch considered the ancient world to be quite marvelous, and the New Age to be one of decline. This is also where the concept of the Dark Ages first developed. Considering he was looking at the world from an Italian perspective, it's hard to really blame him for that idea. In the ancient world, the Roman Empire was preeminent, and Italy was special. In his new age, Italy was no longer special. Bruni came to prominence 100 years later in a time when Renaissance ideas had fully engulfed Italy. 
As a result, Bruni felt Italy was no longer in decline. He added a third age and marked an end to Petrarch's age of decline. You cannot really have two new ages in a periodization model, and thus the idea of the Middle Ages was born. It gained traction and then spread throughout the Western world, where really the description was not as apt. Because the Middle Ages were associated with decline after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, it has since developed negative connotations in popular parlance, and I definitely stand on the side that the Middle Ages, the Medieval Period, and the Dark Ages do not and should not be equated with bad and backward. I also do my best not to refer to the period as the Dark Ages, but medieval is harder to avoid. Anyways, the reason I bring that up is because Petrarch is the next individual we have to discuss. Petrarch, or Francesco Petrarca, was born in 1304 in the Republic of Florence, which is now in the country of Italy. He was one of the earliest humanists and is often credited as initiating the Italian Renaissance. His biggest contribution to the Renaissance movement was his rediscovery of many of Cicero's letters and formal speeches. This kicked off a movement where, over the next 100 years, almost all of Cicero's works were recovered by various scholars. The Italian Renaissance brought Cicero back to the forefront. In some ways, Cicero was more popular in Renaissance Italy than he was when he was still alive. If you knew how to read Latin, you read Cicero. If you were looking to improve your Latin grammar skills, you read Cicero. If you were looking to become a better public speaker, you read Cicero. Cicero was the example of Latin at its most eloquent. The Italian Renaissance continued to gain steam and start to spread throughout the rest of the Western world. As the intellectual movement of humanism spread over in Germany, a man named Johannes Gutenberg was busy inventing the printing press. Around 1440, he debuted the Gutenberg printing press and kicked off the printing revolution. This helped spread the ideas of the Renaissance and contributed to other areas of Europe undergoing their own Renaissance in this period. The demand was so high that by the year 1600, Cicero was one of the most published writers of the day. With the introduction of Gutenberg, it is time to move off continental Europe and onto Great Britain proper as we finally get back to English. The English merchant, William Caxton, is credited as being the first person to introduce a printing press into England, and he did so in 1476. Part of the reason he introduced the press is that Caxton was experiencing heavy demand for his English translation of the Reikio of the Histories of Troy, or in English, a collection of the histories of Troy. And as the name suggests, it is a collection of stories associated with Homer's Iliad. It was the first book printed in English. The collection was originally published in French in the year 1464, and Caxton published his translation in 1474. Caxton's Press is credited with printing 108 different books, with the majority of them being translated works. That 108 includes the first-ever English translation of Aesop's Fables. In 1481, he produced the work known as the Caxton Cicero, which included English translations of Cicero's De Amicitia, De Senectut, and Giovanni Buonaccorso de Montemagno's De Nobete. Only 13 copies of the Caxton Cicero still exist today in its complete form, and the University of Toronto in Canada recently purchased one of them, making it the oldest English-language book in Canada. I just might have to make a trip to go see it one of these days, though probably not until next year. The work of Caxton, along with other contemporary printers and translators, helped to usher in the English Renaissance. The English Renaissance is associated with the Pan-European Renaissance movement, 
but it differed from the Italian Renaissance in that it focused primarily on literature and music instead of the visual arts. Literature, and specifically foreign language literature translated into English, is vital to our falling in love. As you remember, the Latin phrase, in amorum in sedere, is translated as fall in love, and for this particular idiom, it is literally translated from in amorum in sedere. The fall in love idiom first starts to appear in early 16th century English literature. One of the earliest known instances of the idiom is in John Paul's Graves, 1530, Les Ecrasements de la Langue Francoise. Despite the name, it was printed in English. It was a grammar book on the French language. In the book, on page 544, is this quote, I shall fall in love with her. Based on the timeline, it is believed that fall in love was inspired by the phrase in amorum in sedere, and was the way that English translators brought the term into English. This would also explain why fall in love is an idiom that actually can be translated to foreign languages. In amorum in sedere, in Latin, in amorasi, in Italian, Enamorasi in Spanish, Tambor Amaro in French, Sic Verlieben in German, and Namorose in Portuguese. All of these mean approximately fall and in and love. Most etymology websites will tell you that fall and love comes from unknown origins, and I want to stress that this is not a 100% confirmed or accepted etymology. Instead, this is the most likely etymology that I could find based on the evidence available. It has some support from the scholastic community, but there is no smoking gun that confirms the theory, and thus it remains just that, the theory. In any case, beyond the potential inspiration from Latin, to understand the origin of fall and love, we must also look at the etymology and development of the word fall. Fall traces its lineage back to the Old English word fallen, which meant to drop from a height, fail, decay, die. And we also see variations of this word in Proto-Germanic, Old Frisian, Old Saxon, Old Norse, and Old High German. Ultimately, it comes from the Proto-Indo-European root pol, which is to fall. An example of the Old English usage comes to us from a collection of Old English poems that told of the coming of Jesus. It is believed to have been composed near the end of the 8th century or the beginning of the 9th. In Christ 3, we have a line that I am going to translate into modern English, but it went like this. They shall fall rapidly into the grim abyss. This represents a very familiar, traditional, and literal use of the word fall. It was over the centuries that followed that English writers and speakers started to use fall in more inventive ways. One of the early examples came from theological writings. In the book of Genesis, we are introduced to the first two humans, Adam and Eve. In the story, a serpent deceived the two into eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Christian theology, this is known as the original sin of man, and it represents the shift from a state of innocent obedience to one of guilty disobedience for all of humankind. In English, this doctrine is known as the fall of man. This terminology, fall of man, and the usage of fall into evil to mean a succumbing to sin or temptation, came into usage in the early 1200s. In the 1200s and 1300s, in discussions of the Book of Revelations, we started observing the phrase, the fall of Babylon, and with that phrase, fall, took on a descriptor for the destruction of walls, buildings, and cities. In the same time period, falling upon someone, to mean we attack them, also debuted. 
An example of a less physical development of Fall's move to metaphorical description also came in the 13th century with Fall to Sleep, which was followed up a century later with Fall to Sleep. Several big developments, though, waited until the 1500s. Fallout, or fallout with, meaning to quarrel with someone, came at this point, as did falling short, meaning to fail at something, and fall behind, meaning a failure to keep up with one's competitors or schedule, all came around the same period. This was also the period where fall in love first makes its appearance. That is why the alternate theory to the in amorum in sedere is that fall in love instead has an unknown origin where it came from this gradual development of the word fall to capture a very wide variety of non-literal usage. Consider for a moment that William Shakespeare was active from the years 1585 to 1613, and he is credited with inventing or introducing over 1,700 words into the English language. Is it not then possible that someone from a generation or two before Shakespeare, at the start of the English Renaissance, that is characterized by a blossoming of the English literature scene, might have invented the phrase? As a result, it does seem plausible that our phrase, to fall in love, could have been introduced or invented by a similar English writer of that time period, or as speculated earlier, it was introduced by someone like Caxton that needed to find a phrase that fit the Latin translation. Either way, it is impossible to know the exact origin of the term and whether it was inspired by Latin, invented out of thin air, or part of a natural development for the word fall from physical descriptor to a metaphorical one. While we are on the subject, though, in North America we use the word fall to describe the season of autumn. This came from a 16th century phrase, fall of leaf, that described the way the season was characterized by the leaves on trees turning brown and falling off due to the decrease in temperature and the natural cycle of the earth. The term autumn came into English from French, which it had received from Latin. The British used both autumn and fall to describe the season for a few hundred years, and they brought the custom with them to the American colonies. Fall then fell out of use in Britain, but remained in America. Anyways, back to the subject at hand. Our phrase, fall in love, ultimately has an unknown origin. I have presented the two most likely explanations, the first being that it is the English iteration of Ice Erota Piptin that became the Latin Inamorum Incidere, and as classic work started to be translated and published into English in the 1400s and 1500s, the Latin term was translated to fall in love, and from there was popularized throughout the English language. Alternatively, it was part of a natural development of the word fall, from merely a literal term meaning to move in a downward direction, typically rapidly and freely without control, to a figurative term that came to incorporate the rapid and uncontrolled descent into emotions. Or neither, and we just have no idea where or how the idiom originated. Either way, I thought it was quite interesting, and hope you did too. That is all for today's episode. Before I go, I did want to give a little shout-out to Tim Whitmarsh on Twitter. I don't think he is a listener of the show, but he is a professor of Greek culture, and it was one of his tweets which inspired today's episode. If you would like to follow him, you can find him at twittermarsh, or you can find the tweet retweeted on my profile at whyisthatpod. Beyond that, thank you for listening to today's episode of Why Is That? As always, the show is hosted on Acast and can be found anywhere podcasts are streamed, including Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and probably wherever you are listening to this right now. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Until next time.
Cheers.